Welcome, everyone, to another episode of 26.1 AI Podcast, where we have an old friend of mine, not so old, but I've known him for over 17 years, Ian Bicking. And if you're familiar with the Python world or Mozilla world or many other things, you probably have heard his name. And it's a very honor to have you on as our guest today, Ian. Hi. It's great to be here. Thanks. So uh, to kick it off, and I'm here with my co-host, Don Shu as well, as always, well, most times at least. Well, to kick it off, Ian, uh, let's just a little bit real quick for the audience. You know, can you talk about your progression all the way from Earlham to uh, where you're at now in, in, in 30 seconds or less? <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, I've been very involved in open source for a long time. Um, I was at Mozilla for about 10 years. Um, in uh, Mozilla Labs until that was shut down, and uh, management for a while, and uh, Test Pilot, another experimental project kind of incubator, until that was shut down. And then uh, recently moved to uh, Consumer Voice Products in the Emerging Technologies Group, uh, where we were kind of exploring how to apply voice and, and natural language things to uh, new products and to the web. Um, and uh, I was with that until until that was shut down. So <laughs> I've been through many different uh, labs like incubators at Mozilla over the last 10 years until this last one. Firefox Voice, you debuted that fairly recently, didn't you? Uh, yes. Yeah, so Firefox Voice is a voice assistant um, that we built uh, for the browser. Um, and yeah, we've been doing um, kind of like internal releases and friendly, you know, friends and family kind of releases and um, did kind of some more public releases uh, just in the past few months um, of that. So what is the what was the impetus of the voice? Was it just to keep up with some of the other innovations in AI or was it or is there where was the source of the idea? Do you know? Uh, so Mozilla has several voice um, projects. Um, one that is continuing on is Common Voice, and that's uh, kind of a crowdsourced uh, opportunity for people to come in and give their own voice samples and create training data. Um, and that training data is, is open source, so anyone can use that. Um, so there's Common Voice. Another one is Deep Speech, um, and that is a, a deep learning framework for speech recognition. Uh, as well as another um, another one for speech generation, uh, the um, well, that's just text to speech TTS. Um, and then, you know, these were kind of interesting technologies, and then we have to put them together and try to make something out of them. And so that's where the consumer voice product um, team came in. So really trying to apply some of the technologies that have already been worked on. So, um, and catching me up a little bit here, we've only had a couple of times to catch up and we usually talk about other things. So I remember you very, very involved, always very uh, active with your blogging and, and talking about all your ideas, but very involved in the Python community and then transitioning out of it at one point to be in Mozilla um, and now kind of in this world of AI a little bit uh, as well. What, what is the impetus of your change in, in your path? What, 
what is your, um, you know, what usually steers you in another direction? Is it, you know, demand or is it, you know, what, what gets you wanting to move to another area? Boredom, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm excited about, uh, about new things. I, I, I did a lot of open source for a long time and that's, that's how I came to Mozilla. But, um, in some ways that's, that was always like getting to building up all the pieces, all the, the, the building blocks for something else. Um, so I think as I came to realize that I've, I've been focusing more on like, what, what do we actually use these building blocks for? Um, so yeah, the, the last several years have been much more about kind of applied, um, applied things and, and things that users can really use and, and if possible can change the way people use computers. Um, which is what, what brought me to the voice team as well. You know, it's a, um, opportunity to, to think about a new, a new space, one that, uh, hasn't existed before. And we, and, you know, the world has not decided exactly what voice interfaces should be like. And, uh, there's just like a lot of, a lot of intersecting things to, to consider, well, um, which is where I enjoy being. Well, the ones that are leading Mindshare right now, Alexa and Google Assistant, they scare me. We're talking about two companies that are entirely dependent on attention economy, and they have all the motivations to do wrong with the data that they're collecting. So I, that's one of the fascinating things about this project that Mozilla pursued it, as for me, at least. Yeah. At the same time, I'm actually quite positive about voice. Like, um, we, we use Alexa quite a bit at home and, and that's been very useful just to understand what these experiences are like as well. Um, and while there is that privacy angle at the same time, voice interfaces to me feel more humane than a lot of other interfaces. Uh, they don't try to get you to scroll further. They don't interrupt you unless you ask them for something. Um, they're they're really much more of of a relationship that feels much more healthy, right? Like if you're using a voice assistant, you're you're doing so in public. You're not like entering this private world. In you know when there's a bunch of people and one person looks at a phone, like you don't know why. But if you're interacting with voice, like it 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 doesn't break down that social connection. Um, so like the privacy issue is still there, but like from a social perspective, uh, I really think it it has a lot of positives. I. I think it's hugely important. Um, the example I offer is my spouse. She's not a she's not a big tech user. She may have called three lifts on her own using an app. She may use a total of three apps ever. Yet when she interacts for search, she prefers voice on her phone. And I hear so many stories from friends with children. A lot of them are interacting with tech through voice. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's hugely important. And I get what you're saying about it being a more humane interface, though you have some opinions about um, etiquette with voice assistants. Yeah, I, I guess I've been trying to figure out how to describe it, but... Um... There, I mean, there's a debate. 
is it is it okay for people to kind of like yell at their assistant or to be um, impolite or or even like you know Siri does have certain reactions if you swear at her right um, and here I am calling it her even though obviously it's not a person um, and and there are there are like a lot of people who feel like this is a this is kind of kind of make us more cold there's some questions about like the the gender of these voice assistants and whether we're inviting certain kinds of interactions um that's that's some place where I, I i think both we have to be aware because there is going to be an emotional reaction when people are going to use voice that's different than other other mediums um uh, one thing user researchers at, at mozilla found is for instance when people were doing voice search on their phones um, and they had an accent and, and they couldn't get it to understand uh they took it much more personally it was like there's something wrong with me because i'm not able to interact with this um in a way that i, I don't think like typing on your keyboard and having problems with that is going to have that same emotional reaction well, I'm, uh, so well, i've been pretty hard on my keyboard before <laughs> yeah uh but I, I think it's in part it's our job not to um like we should be aware of that but we should also try to remove some of the emotional impact instead of uh building on it right like we, we should we should make it clear that the thing you're interacting with doesn't have feelings and can't have its feelings hurt um because that, that is the, that's the truth you know behind it uh and that's that's kind of a something that we have to work towards and, and i think a lot of people like see that emotional reaction and then they're kind of excited to make use of it and that's where i think we need to like really hold ourselves back um that making use of it is is I think the more morally questionable issue there. So I saw a social dilemma I think it's called and our friend uh, Aza Raskin was on there uh, from I'm sure from the Python community we both interacted and yeah. um, and then I didn't realize he invented infinite scroll and I got onto the wiki page for it and he he apologized to the world <laughs> for inventing infinite scroll. And I'm wondering if we're going to apologize for creating uh, voice interfaces and, and things like that later, where people just become so more likely to talk to their robot than they do their spouse. Yeah, I, one of the dangers is that the reason that it's not emotionally manipulative on voice is just because we haven't figured out how to do that yet. And once we do, then, you know, capitalism knows how to make use of things um and so maybe it's just a question of maturity uh but it's also our responsibility to to keep that from happening again is this a segue into bringing in gpt3 into the conversation and <laughs> what's going to happen with that with voice i don't know what do you think is going to happen with i i listened to your conversation about it on a podcast and you have some critiques already about about that platform, right? Yeah, somebody uh, somebody took my um, I wrote a blog post recently about voice interfaces, and someone took that and used it as a I don't know, is seed the right right word for a GPT three thing, and then basically like came up with an AI generated version of the blog post or something, um, which was like it brought up all these terms and like it kept having these like it was like hot take after hot take of like interesting ways to put it together ideas about voice um except none of it meant anything right it was it was all fakery and and there was no 
belief behind it, and nobody was actually making an assertion that anything was true. Uh, it w- but but it was really hard to read because um, you, like you can read like just word salad and and you can do something with that. But if you're reading something that really seems to be making salient points, it's hard not to try to do something with that. And that's that's what GPT three felt like to me in that way. And, and some of the other places I've encountered it, um, it's it, it gets in your head, but it can't actually say anything because it doesn't actually believe anything. Sounds like it's a simulation of putting us through what a first-year college composition teacher has to go through. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's going to be so many college essays written by GBC3. I, I would not want to grade them. So I, I took a peek at, and, and I have to admit, I've probably been listening to your blog before I even knew what blogs were. I think your blog was the first blog I ever really read in my life, to be honest with you. But I, I did take a peek at the recent edition of that, talking about the different projects and things you uh, might be wanting to dabble in or, or work on. Has any of those floated to the top or, or what is your main uh, focus right now? Uh, well, since I was laid off and I, I had some time, um, I am hoping to be more more playful than productive. Um, I've, I've been so I, being with Mozilla for so long. I spent a lot of time trying to um, align my creative impulses with the strategic needs and political realities of Mozilla, um, and those projects are my attempt to unwind, <laughs> unwind that. At least those potential projects, to to decide what it is that I, I want to do, um, purely as my, my own desire. So, and and so I think yes, about your prior inventions. And I remember you came to me once, mentioning the enormous popularity of virtual ends, which was your invention in the Python world, and you said to me. But Brian, it's it's just a simple script, and I've written things that were I put tons more thought into than this stupid script. And why is this one the one that becomes so popular? Yeah, we we don't get to choose, um, and sometimes I don't know. Over and over, I've learned that like solving smaller problems tends to lead to much more popularity than coming up with like sophisticated. Um, large, complex solutions to to ambiguous problems. Um, maybe I'll learn that lesson, or maybe I'll just keep making large, ambiguous <laughs> things. Maybe a, a more thorough context on virtual env and what happened. Uh, so, virtual env and uh, pip are two projects I started. Um, a long time ago, they they become kind of the standard um, installation tools for a lot of Python work. Uh, virtual env is something that gives you kind of like a isolated Python environment. Um, before that, people are often you know installing things globally, and so if you had two projects, you'd get like two sets of libraries, and they'd all get mixed up together, and you couldn't get rid of them, and everyone was doing slightly different combinations that they couldn't. Nobody could debug each other's like installation paths. Um, so virtual env, like, was something that was actually started by Philip, uh, Philip Eby, um, as well as a lot of what comes came into pip as well. Um, 
was was started by him as part of packaging. And then uh, I liked his ideas, and I saw how people were not liking <laughs> were not liking his ideas. And I like these are good ideas. And so basically, like those those were me taking um, the ideas he had and and some of the stuff he had had done, and then like packaging it up in a way that that satisfied people's um, satisfied people's, I don't know, desires and aesthetics a little bit better. Uh, so as I said, like, I, I don't feel um, they're, they're kind of my biggest contributions, but not, not the ones that I'm proudest about. So it puts, puts me in an odd, odd place. I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy with them and I'm glad that they've uh, helped people out. If you want to revisit packaging for the Python community, I mean, there's no end of work there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, right now, what I think, and, and something that I, looking back on it, that I did put a lot of effort into, which I don't think I, I deserves some like thought, is advocating for those tools and uh, sometimes even like saying, like, don't use that thing, use my thing. Um, cause there were a bunch of like competing ideas and different ways about going about things at that time. Uh, and I think Python has, is a lot better off because there isn't a ton of different ways to do that, but, but there are, there's like this next level, right? Like how do you compose an application? How do you like manage your environments? You have a, a bunch of different tools around that. And right now, I think the, the thing the Python community needs to do is make some decisions including maybe like some less friendly decisions and someone needs to like stand up and say, no, this is the right way to do it. And I'm, I'm going to really advocate. Do you for still it. lurk on the um, uh, Python lists? No, no, I've, I've, yeah, I'm not really part of the Python community anymore. All my, all my work has been in JavaScript for some time. Yeah. And that was interesting that when you diverged from that, um, and you don't have to speak on too much why, but I certainly know, and Don does too, of many controversies in the Python community, which seem unfortunate. Well, I, I think that happens in all the different communities. Um, in the Python world, I, you and I know those discussions quite well, but I mean... I have friends in the JavaScript community that I enjoy interacting with and learning about how they interact. And I've been making a lot of friends in the Scala community lately. And they're they're really different, but they have a lot of cool stuff going on too. I mean, it's just amazing the brilliance in Mozilla. And I, I treat Mozilla as its own thing. Maybe I shouldn't. And maybe it's just like any other open source project hub. But I, I see it as having a lot of brilliance. It was just in an con extremely competitive space. I think that was the hardest part of it. But you were there and you lived it. What was the difference between the Python community and the Mozilla community and Apache? And what are the differences between these communities? Uh, I mean, Mozilla is really a corporation. And people work there. And they have jobs. Um, so that's very different from the Python community. Uh, you know, it, I think it's different than other places in that there really is uh, a strong shared mission. It's different than other maybe like corporate environments. Um, and 
you know, a lot of a lot of shared expectations about how software works and how you include people in the community and, and all those sorts of things. Um, but Mozilla does have to be a corporation with people who have jobs and make sure that the download servers are up and make sure that the marketing campaigns go out and all that kind of stuff, um, which is, is different than an open source community. Um, and something I, uh, having, having seen that, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity that we're never going to be able to achieve in other open source projects because actually like distributing large software projects like that requires all those jobs and the open source community can't just get volunteers to do all those, all that work. And, um, and it's, and it's hampered us, you know, as hampered us as a open source community, we haven't been able to, to produce works on the same size and with the same impact. Instead, we tend to make libraries that we give to other people and then they turn them into commercial applications and they do all that work. Uh, so yeah, we're not bringing it to the people as a result. What are you, are there precautionary tales with the open source world and even AI? I always kind of like to ask about what are your fears? Do you have any fears about how people use open source or how people use AI? Um, I mean, I remain both positive and skeptical about open source. Um, I think we have created something that really increases the value of developers and it shows in, in kind of the, um, the way developers are treated and, and compensated. Uh, I'm not sure that we have created, you know, the original kind of free software dream was about this being a, a more societal change. And I don't think we are achieving that. Um, and, it, you know, with sometimes it feels like uh, open source is kind of like a, a charity towards developers. Um, you know, AI, a lot of the open source is in the tooling. And then the application is done by another, you know, another company or part of, part of something else. Um, so it's it's replicating that same same thing where the, the openness is empowering to the people who have the resources to, to make use of it. Um, and I don't, I don't know what the solution there is. So one of, one of them might be open data. That's something um, that Mozilla, and I think the Mozilla Foundation is gonna kind of be continuing to work on. That's something Common Voice is trying to do for voice data um, that might, democratize uh, some of the work. Um, but but even if you democratize the data, uh, because we don't have a, a process to actually kind of bring running code to the people um, in open source, it, it's still going to be um, the applications that those technologies are going to be kind of controlled and not not shared as well as they might be. So I, th I think that's some of my concern. Hmm. Going back to Common Voice, I read it's got something over a thousand hours of um, voice data. Was that enough for Firefox Voice to be competitive for what you needed it to do? Um, well, so 
deep speech, uh, the the speech recognition engine um, in Mozilla um, uses kind of a variety of data. Um, I'm sure they use some from Common Voice, but a lot of it is um, from uh, what is it, Libra, 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 Libra something. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the name, uh, but it's it's basically a bunch of people reading public domain uh, LibriVox is a lot of people reading public domain books. Mm. So, you know, audiobooks from the public domain uh, from, you know, 100 years ago. <laughs> the recordings are not 100 years old. The recordings are all done with, with nice high quality microphones and the um, the text is 100 years old. And so that, that was actually uh, quite a problem for us. Um, so we, we were using Google um, transcription so that we could kind of explore the the process, and then we were kind of simultaneously testing it with Deep Speech um, on the back end, just to see how the how the two compared and how they were doing. Um, but in terms of being able to understand in noisy environments, you know, again, LibreVox is, is people speaking into microphones and, and not someone, you know, with an air conditioning next to them and an open microphone. Um, and then also in terms of understanding current speech, um, there was a lot of um, issues around that. Uh, so it turns out, you know, in Firefox Voice, we were doing a browser voice assistant. And um, the use cases there are actually not that different than a home um, a home voice assistant. And it's mostly people doing little searches and then doing like basic controls, you know, playing music or something like that. Um, and those searches, they are just full of very timely information and you know lots of proper nouns lots of names of places uh, so that, that is that requires a very up-to-date language model um, to be able to do accurately and and that's a big challenge and you know google obviously has the has access to more information about the things people are talking about and searching for than anybody um, and and it shows in the quality of the product so Well, um, to kind of wrap up this, this session, uh, how best can people find you? You know, what's the, I probably know three or three ways, but how, how would you like to people to find you? Uh, my, my webpage and other places, I, I am ianbicking.org or ianbicking on Twitter. Um, and yeah. Oh, thanks. It was really, it was really great catching up with you. Uh, we need to catch up more often. Thank you for joining. Yeah.